This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Last week, in a continuing response to the work and ideas of Phyllis Tickle, a great lady who was with us four weeks ago, great author, scholar, for the last couple of weeks I've been teaching a lesson continuing her theme on the Holy Spirit. I want to read from last week's lesson just a bit to refresh those that weren't here. For those that were here, this bears repeating. But this is in response to Philip's latest work, The Age of the Spirit, or The Age of the Holy Spirit. Central to Phyllis's theory is the idea captured in the title of her latest book, a book called The Age of the Spirit. And that idea is that the Christian church is coming into a time where our emphasis in terms of how we relate to God is shifting to the Holy Spirit. She posited intelligently, I think, upon retrospect, she posited that the Judeo-Christian story, when we say Judeo-Christian story, we're talking about the story that began with Abraham in earnest, and after 2,000 years gave us our Lord Jesus, and then 2,000 years later, we look back and see two millenniums of this age called the age of the church. She posited that from Abraham to Jesus, God was chiefly known to humans, specifically to that group of people, Israel, to whom he related. God was chiefly known as creator, or in Trinitarian language, many of you come from uh, a background where you understand this language in a triune language or the, the language of the early church, God was chiefly known from Abraham to Jesus as Father. doesn't take a close reading of the Old Testament scriptures to see that, G that God wasn't related to as the Son or as even the capital H, capital S, Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit was certainly mentioned, but those were nominatives, adjectives more than they were a proper name. So her position was that from Abraham to Jesus, human beings saw God as Father. And in the past 2,000 years, from Jesus till now, or the first 2,000 years of the church age, she says that we have chiefly, not only, but chiefly, primarily, we have chiefly related to God Christologically, or through the lens of the eternal Son, our eternal brother, we know as Jesus. We call ourselves Christians after him. So for 2,000 years, the emphasis was on the Father. For 2,000 years, the emphasis has been on the Son, Jesus. And what she's saying is that moving forward, and this is a theory, a hypothesis, but she's saying moving forward, we're beginning as a church overall to relate more to God as the Holy Spirit. She cites um, the Wesleyan movement of the past three centuries, born of the Protestant movement, the Wesleyan movement, and it, its emphasis on sanctification, a second work of grace, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Specifically, she spends a lot of time as a liberal Episcopal speaking favorably about the movement that I was born of and the tribe that I still, in my heart, am deeply connected to. Um, she spoke to this past century's birth and growth of the Pentecostal charismatic movement. And she says, obviously, within the Pentecostal charismatic church, which, by the way, 100 years ago was essentially unknown, but 100 years later, commands at least 25, some say up to 50% of the body of Christ give allegiance there, if not actively, tacitly. 
So it's been a major movement in the history of the church, this Pentecostal movement. And any of you that have been raised in the Pentecostal world as I, I grew up, um, understand that there was a great emphasis on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And so she cites that movement as indicative of what's happening in the broader body of Christ. When she first said that, I pushed back and I said, are you talking about sequential modalism? Modalism was an early heresy of the church that was quickly shot down, I say quickly, within the first few centuries of the church. Sequential modalism particularly, it sounded like what she was talking about, said that God was Father and then God was Son and then God retired from that and became Holy Spirit. That's sequential modalism. And um, her response to me immediately was, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. And we had a sidebar after and I asked her to more fully relate and it made total sense what she was saying. She said, no, no, no. I'm not saying God was Father, then God was Son, then God was Holy Spirit. I'm not saying this was God's intentional method. She said, I affirm that God is contemporaneously in a mystery beyond what we can understand, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and always has been. She said, I'm simply saying, in this age of the Holy Spirit, that within human capacity, she said, I'm not saying that God wasn't Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit from Abraham to Jesus. I'm just saying that the chief way we saw him and related to him was Father. She said, within human capacity and human vision, this is the way we have over time related to and primarily seeing God. And I get that because she's putting the onus on us at that point. I began to make the case last week and I want to continue the case this week and it will go even into next week in a little mini-series here in response to her called The Age of the Holy Spirit. I want to make the case because I believe Scripture makes the strong case that Jesus Christ, the Son, intended immediately for the church to move into what Phyllis calls the Age of the Spirit. I believe that the chief ministry of Jesus was not to draw attention simply to himself, but to lift up this idea that Scripture clearly refers to as the outpouring and the presence of God through his Holy Spirit in all the earth, Joel said, upon all flesh. So I'm making the case that it was not the intention of Jesus that we spend 2,000 years loving on him, and then after 2,000 years, we would finally come around to the Holy Spirit. I don't think that was done by God at all, but we see through a glass darkly, and I think she's right. Our emphasis has shifted over time, and we are now coming into a fuller idea of what is meant by the Holy Spirit. Now, with that said... Last week, we looked at the Luke-Acts account or record of Jesus' emphasis on the Holy Spirit. When I say Luke-Acts, I want you to remember the Gospel of Luke was written by the same person who wrote the book of Acts. And if scholars are right, the book of Acts was probably written first. There were Gospels floating around, many Gospels floating around probably, accounts of Jesus' life. And a writer wrote the story of the early church after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus when the Spirit fell and the church was established. They wrote the book of Acts. Most likely after writing the book of Acts, the author believed that they should go back and do a prequel, which would be a gospel, and do as good an account as they could of the life of Jesus up to his ascension to set up and give premise to and base to this establishment of the church story known as the book of Acts. So we looked at the Luke-Acts account uh, last week. If you weren't here, 
I'd suggest you go back and listen, but let me give you a five-minute thumbnail sketch that bears repeating even for those who were here. If you're walking through the Luke-Acts narrative and you're trying to capture the essence of Jesus' message and what exactly Jesus came to do, a lot of passages we could look at, but I think it's interesting, even before Jesus began his ministry, he had a predecessor to his ministry who was a cousin of his. You guys know who that was? That guy was John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist preceded Jesus, and as he was later referred to uh, by Jesus as the greatest of the prophets, he was the summation of Israel's prophetic message, and he came preaching that the kingdom of God was near. He preached the same thing that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Joel preached. He just added something to it, and that was that it's near. That's the only difference between John and the Old Testament prophets. It's near, he said. Now, he didn't really realize how near exactly it was, but I'll tell you how near it was. The Bible says that as he was preaching, Israel began to flock to him. And as they flocked to him, the Bible says all of Israel went to be baptized of him. He was down by the Jordan River one day, and as he was preaching, the crowd was in such a frenzy that they began to claim, verbally, loudly, they began to claim and foment the idea that he was the Messiah. At which point, John drew the line, and John said, I appreciate, I appreciate the offer, but I am not the Messiah. Not only am I not the Messiah, he said, I am not worthy to reach down and untie his shoelaces. John, in trying to express that he was not the Messiah, that the Messiah was greater than he, looked ahead. Now, we understand the theological reflection of Paul and James and the apostles on Jesus, but this was prophesying forwardly, looking ahead to what Jesus was due, and as, as the people in a frenzied attempt tried to make John the Messiah, he pushed back on them and he gave this synopsis of the ministry of Jesus. You want essential Jesus? This is what John said. John said, I indeed, I, I do not deny that there has been a move of God's Spirit and it has happened through me. I indeed have baptized you with water. But the one that comes after me, as John reflected and tried to capture the voice of the Old Testament prophets, as John, under inspiration, tried to summate the life and ministry of Jesus before Jesus even stepped onto the scene and was named. Within moments, Jesus would arrive, and John's gospel said, John the Baptist would say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But before that moment, John said, if I were going to explain to you the ministry of Jesus, this is the way I would say it. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Bible tells us that Jesus arrived on the scene and the people, aghast, amazed, this was the Messiah. John declared him so. The Bible tells us that Jesus walked up to John and said, I must needs be baptized of you, at which point John responded the same way we would. John said, me baptize you? How could I lay hands on you? You should baptize me. To which Jesus humbly responded, and to all of you that are looking to water baptism or have never been water baptized, here's a great encouragement for you. Not only is Jesus the baptizer, he is the baptized one. 
As an example for all of us, the Bible says that Jesus did not begin by baptizing people. He looked at John and said, baptize me. Upon the argument, Jesus responded and said, I must needs be baptized that all righteousness be fulfilled. There are many arguments for baptism. The central one for me is if Jesus felt the need to be baptized, <laughs> then I want to join the Lord in the waters of baptism, not simply as the baptizer, but as the baptized one. Jesus stepped into the water, and when he stepped into the water, underscoring the message of John the Baptist that he would baptize with the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that Jesus, as the baptized one, came up out of the water in a form that looked somehow mystically like a dove settled on him. And do you remember what the Bible says that was? The Bible says that the Holy Spirit fell on Jesus. And the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What does it mean to us that now John has said he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and now Jesus himself has been fallen upon by the Holy Spirit? Well, Luke 4 immediately begins and the Bible says, and Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit. Now we understand that God is spirit and spirit is not corporeal or material or dimensional, that in is just a limited metaphor, it's a preposition. But what's being spoken to here is not physical placement like water in a glass, but it's talking about the divine union of God with humanity, incarnate we see in Jesus. Jesus, the Bible said, having been fallen upon by the Holy Spirit is now described as being full of the Holy Spirit. Being full of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says he was immediately led by the Spirit, which that's a Pauline idea. Paul later talking about this union that we have with God and the fullness of his Spirit, Paul said it this way. He said, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess. Be a responsible adult. Don't allow chemicals or substances or any other thing to take dominion of your life and enslave you to that. Long before addiction was spoken to, Paul was speaking with other words to that same thing. Paul said you give yourself to it and it can abuse you and you can become a slave to that. But he said don't be, listen to this, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess. But, listen to the counterpoint, but be ye filled with the Holy Spirit the idea, when you see those two things juxtaposed, a person inebriated by alcohol, what happens when you get under the influence of alcohol to that extent? You do things that you wouldn't normally do. Control goes outside of you to a chemical substance and you can act a fool and damage yourself, your family, and even kill people. Vehicular homicide is one of the great tragedies of this day. I've walked with three people through that process, not only on the side of having a loved one taken, but as the person who's perpetrated it. And every person who gets behind a wheel having drunk is playing Russian roulette and to some degree is complicit with society in that. That's what Paul was talking about. He said, don't come under the influence of alcohol and lose your own control. But if you want to come under the influence, be filled with the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is not a spatial thing. It's the idea of such union with God that Paul said as many as are filled with God's Spirit are led by God's Spirit. And so the Bible says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. You want the essential Jesus? Jesus was submitted to baptism, fallen upon by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then was led by the Spirit. After being tempted in the wilderness, the Bible says that 
When the devil left him from the temptations, Scripture says that Jesus left there and returned to Galilee. Listen to this language, in the power of the Spirit. Not only was he filled by and led by, but there was a power in his life that came from this union. How could you not be empowered incarnate? How could you not be empowered if you have such union with God that you are led and filled by his Spirit? So then we jump to the end of Luke's gospel, Luke 24, just before the ascension of Jesus. Years of ministry go by, at least a year, maybe as many as three years of ministry go by, and Jesus has his disciples post-resurrection. He's died, been buried, been resurrected, and the Bible says there was a 40-day window there where he was seen of the apostles. In the last meeting with his apostles before the ascension, Jesus gathered his disciples You want essential Jesus? You want the age of the Spirit? Listen to Jesus. He gathered his disciples and he told them, I will send the promise of my Father upon you. And as they contemplated what this meant, the promise of the Father, and hold that phrase in your mind, Jesus said, but you are to leave here and go to Jerusalem because I'm about to leave here. They didn't know how he was going to leave, but he was about to leave. And he said, when I leave here, you are to go to Jerusalem and you are to stay in Jerusalem, listen to this language, until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus describes the same experience two ways. He said, I'm gonna send the promise of the Father and you are going to be clothed with power from on high And it's not happening here, it's going to happen when you go to Jerusalem. Now, the Bible tells us that he ascended at that moment into the heavens, and as he ascended into the heavens, the apostles, the disciples were so caught up that they stood there worshiping him. Acts, the first chapter, probably the first first of the two books in the compendium written, Acts, the first chapter, is simply a rehash with more detail of the event that we just heard in Luke 24. So what you read in Luke 24, you'll read again in Acts 1 with a little more detail by the same author. In Acts 1, as the book of Acts and the beginning of the church's story begins, the writer we call Luke reflected back and overlapped the stories and said, I want to remind you He starts the book of Acts saying, the former treatise I wrote to you, O Theophilus, probably a pet name for the church, like beloved. The former treatise I wrote to you, Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until that time when he ascended into heaven. And then he recounts. He further describes that moment where Jesus is sitting there that I just described with the disciples. And Jesus says to them in Acts 1, Behold, I send the promise of the Father upon you. Now, what Luke's gospel doesn't do, Acts 1 does. Jesus explains to them what the promise of the Father is, and I want you to hear this. Jesus in Acts 1, with fuller memory, the writer says, I am going to send the promise of the Father upon you, which you have heard from me. Now, what he's saying there is this is not something new that I'm pulling out here right at the end before I ascend. I'm going to send the promise of the Father which you have heard from me. In other words, I've been talking about this from the get-go. John the Baptist was talking about this. The prophets were talking about this. This has been my ministry the entire time. 
And now it's getting ready to be fulfilled. The promise of the Father is going to be sent to you, listen, which you have heard from me. Interesting. He said, which you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So what Luke's gospel says, John said, Acts says that Jesus actually picked that language up from John and Jesus said, you've heard from me, reiterating what John said throughout the ministry of Jesus. Jesus said, the promise of the Father is coming for as John said, you will be baptized by me. You want the essential ministry of Jesus? Jesus said, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Luke 24, Acts 1 said, he ascends into heaven. They stand there worshiping. I thought it was curious last week that Luke 24 says they were standing there worshiping and then they went to Jerusalem. Acts 1 gives a little more color commentary. It says, while they were worshiping, an angel, two angels appeared to them and said, what are you doing? Now, I think there's nothing wrong with worshiping Jesus, but the angels admonished them and said, it's not the time. He did not say, get caught up in the ascension and stand here worshiping. As they were worshiping, the angels walked up and said, what are you doing? Did you not hear what he said? Go to Jerusalem. The Bible says they shut down their worship, closed the hymnal, put down their hands and did what he said. And they went to Jerusalem. Scripture tells us that they were there at Jerusalem for seven to 10 days. Let me frame for this for you in the history of the church. In those seven to 10 days, there were about 120 of them, scattered followers of Jesus who had seen him in the resurrection, believed in him in the ascension that were dutifully doing what he said, and they were in Jerusalem worshiping God, reflecting on the life of Jesus and waiting for him to return. In that process, they had to handle some business. They had 11 apostles now, 11 original disciples. They needed to replace a fellow by the name of Judas. They cast lots and they filled that slot with a fellow by the name of Matthias. The new disciple apostle, the other 11, and a group of about 108 other people, including the Mary, the mother of Jesus, were there for seven to 10 days. And the book of Acts, the second chapter says, doing what Jesus told them to do, waiting for the promise of the Father, which they had heard from him, John baptized you with water, but I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Acts two says, 50 days after the Passover resurrection weekend, the day of Pentecost, which was a major Jewish celebration, on the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost was fully came, come, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues as a fire. Fire, fire, fire. There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it set upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Scripture tells us as they came out of that upper room, a phenomenological experience was happening to them. They were speaking in languages that they didn't know was the original story. And as they came out of the upper room, the Jews that were there coming from many places as the diaspora, the dispersed Jews throughout the Mediterranean rim, the Mesopotamian crescent, all these people there, there were at least 18 different nations with languages represented and they heard them magnificently speaking in languages that were indigenous only to the diaspora, languages that the speakers didn't know. 
and they were so caught by this that they were attracted and they were lured in. And as they were lured in, the Bible says that Peter stood up with the rest of the apostles and using again Pauline language, he said, these are not drunk as you suppose. They are indeed under the influence of something. They are not drunk as you suppose. Seeing it's just nine o'clock in the morning. Everybody knows good Christians don't drink before noon. That's a bad use of scripture right there. Do you see that? I wanted to give you an example of a bad use of scripture. These are not drunk as you suppose, seeing it's but nine o'clock in the morning. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter could have said, this is that which Jesus talked about. This is that which John talked about. But he goes all the way back and conscripts the voice of another prophet, a quintessential prophet from the Hebrew uh, scripture. And he says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And here's what Joel said. It's what John said. It's what Jesus has come to do. Joel said, in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, Joel described it this way. In the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. There will be a recognition of the union of God with humanity that allows the incarnation seen in Jesus only to be the tip of the iceberg of how big God's union with man really is. In the last days, saith God, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh, men, women, boys, girls, Greeks, barbarians, slaves, and slave owners. And the Bible says that as Peter waxed eloquent, now he used Isaiah, Ezekiel. He even quoted from the Psalms and David. He came to the scripture that I concluded with hastily last week that I want to take time with now, Acts, the second chapter. As he comes to the conclusion of his message, the Bible says that the people are standing there in rapt attention. I know they must have been because 3,000 of them were converted in short way. And Peter says with the apostles, this Jesus whom you crucified, he had just told them, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Now this is what happened to Jesus when he ascended into the heavens. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, what happened to Jesus when he was exalted to the right hand of God? He received from the Father the promise. There it is. Jesus said, what you've heard from me. He received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what do we do? Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The age of the Spirit, the message of the Spirit, in no wise was a diminishment of Jesus. Peter said, each of you should be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And here's what happens. And you will receive, not you could, not you might, not maybe. But if you'll repent and change your mind, and be baptized in the name of the one you crucified, you will receive the gift, because that's what it is. It's not just the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, you will receive, you will receive. You may not have known it, but you did receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which God says is my spirit 
offered and poured out upon all flesh. Now, written, that's the Luke-Acts account. Written after the Luke-Acts account of the gospel story to another Christian community is another account of this same story using completely different narratives but telling the same story. All of the gospel writers used their memories. But as John's gospel concludes, if we wrote down all the things Jesus said and did, we wouldn't be able to contain them in this world if the books, the books would literally fill a library the size of this world. And so after the Luke X account, probably 20 to 30 years later, written to another Christian community, probably over in Western Asia Minor, across the Aegean Sea from Greece, at a little place called Ephesus, which was really a center point for the church at that time, is another account of this same story that we know as the Gospel of John. And I want you to listen for the little bit of time we have left, and then we'll pick up here next week. I want you to listen how the Gospel of John tells the same story, showing clearly Jesus' teaching and emphasis on the Holy Spirit, but uses completely different narrative events from Jesus' life. But it's the same deal. Look at John, the third chapter. Right out of the chute, as Jesus begins his ministry. Look at this with me. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees, a Jewish ruler named Nicodemus. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. No one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, and this is one of the first, this in John is really the first message that Jesus ever preaches. So if you want to know essential Jesus, listen here. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's got to be a transformation of mind that he might see what is all around him. Remember, Jesus didn't say the kingdom of God is out there or up there. He pulled a child into his lap and he said, it's in here. This stuff is in here, if you can just see it. But people who don't have those eyes, they don't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, a religious scholar, said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? You see how you can get in one frame of mind, a material, three-dimensional frame of mind, and, and, and not hear spiritual things? Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time? It's kind of graphic. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Look at the next verse. Jesus answered, trying to explain now more alliteratively, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that's not talking about water baptism, that's talking about flesh, birth, because the guy just says, can you be born a second time, enter into your mother's womb, amniotic fluid, uh, the release of water, a baby comes into the world. Jesus said, listen, unless you're born of water and the spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Right out of the chute, Jesus is talking about the spirit. Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't be amazed by the fact that me, the Messiah, I'm talking about a birth of spirit. Look at the next verse. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it, where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus didn't let him off the hook. Jesus answered and said to him, are you a teacher of Israel and don't understand these things? 
Do you have the Hebrew scriptures? Have you lived with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel? Are you a ruler of the Jews and you don't get this? Look at the next verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen, and you don't believe. How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? This idea of the spirit is a dimension beyond the fleshly and the material. It's the dimension of heavenly things, he describes them. If I told you earthly things and you don't accept our testimony, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That scripture that we love so much was spoken into an audience of one human being. For God so loved the world, Nicodemus, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus says at the outset of his ministry, what I've come to do is to create this thing called a birth of the Spirit. Nicodemus was curious, but Jesus then gives a theological uh, framework, even a time frame to this. Jesus said, but as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, y'all remember that story? Everybody was getting bit by snakes. God said, make a brazen serpent, put it on a stick, raise it up. Everybody who looks at the serpent will be saved and they won't get snake bit and they'll be healed from the snake bites. Beautiful story. Back in the book of Numbers, right? Horrible story. Aren't you glad you didn't live in the book of Numbers? You fall asleep in church and a snake comes and bites you where you're sitting. Beautiful story. You look up and you're healed. That's the story that Jesus refers to. And Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So this idea of the birth of the Spirit can't happen until Jesus is lifted up. Now, a good question for you to ask is, when is Jesus lifted up? Could a case be made that Jesus was lifted up on the cross? Could a case be made that Jesus was lifted up in the resurrection? Could a case be made that Jesus was lifted up in the ascension? Absolutely. But the point is not clear in John 3. We just know before the birth of the Spirit can happen, Jesus has to be lifted up. So the birthing of the Spirit is something that Jesus came talking about, but it was not fully effective during his earthly ministry. He has to be lifted up. Look at John, the fourth chapter, just walking through the Gospel of John here quickly. Jesus still referring to the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to the woman at the well, who was married five times and was living with a guy. He said, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. God will no longer be relegated to just this Father that you can worship on mountaintops through religious strictures. You worship what you don't know, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers, when true spirituality True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And this is the message of Jesus. Why is Jesus about the Spirit? Because God is Spirit. And those who worshiped him must worship him in spirit and truth. Why a birth of the Spirit? It's all about union with God. It's about the capacity of human beings in a three-dimensional world to relate 
to a God beyond and above and through and in and beyond. John, the seventh chapter, quickly. On the last day of the great day of the feast, a religious festival in Israel, look at this. On the last day of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So Jesus offers himself to the world and says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Now the question begs, when you go to Jesus for a drink, what will he give you? In the fourth chapter that we just read, the woman that he was speaking to, he also spoke of thirst and he said, your problem is not men, your problem is not sex, your problem is you're thirsty and you've never found the right well. And after asking her for a drink of water, he said, sis, what I want to really tell you is if you ask of me, I'll give you water to drink from that you'll never thirst again. It was a recurring theme in Jesus' life. If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. Now listen to how he describes this. He who believes in me. This isn't Luke-Acts language. This is Johannine language. A whole different way of telling the story, but it's the same story. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, as the prophets have prophesied, as the Bible's been saying for years, Moses talked about it, Isaiah talked about it, the scripture has been telling us this. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Guess what? You drink from me and it translates into an ever-living well that flows out, not from heaven, but from inside you. You literally get a river of living water. What does it mean? Come to me and drink. You'll have an inner well that flows, rivers of living water. What is that? Listen to essential Jesus. But this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive future tense, for the Spirit was not yet given. Remember in John 3, Jesus said, because as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What does it mean to be lifted up? Crucifixion on a cross, resurrection by God, ascension into the heavens. Probably ascension because Jesus clarifies now, this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Was he glorified in the crucifixion? Was he glorified in the resurrection? A case can be built, but ultimately the church decided he was glorified in the ascension. This innermost union with God, Jesus said is everything that I've come to do. Now I wanna read one final passage of scripture in John 14 and then we'll go home and we'll pick up exactly here next week and I want you to hang with me in this but look at John the 14th chapter and I want you to notice something with me this is the night before Jesus was crucified this literally is hours away from Judas kissing him and him being abducted to that kangaroo court where he was ultimately executed Jesus has his disciples near at the Last Supper table. And he has explained to them on three occasions now that he is going away and must needs be crucified and their hearts are broken. Now don't miss this. Don't let your heart be troubled, Jesus said. You believe in God, believe also in me. What he's trying to say is, you think you're losing me, but you're not. Don't let your heart be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. The vision of this text that I grew up with is that one day we die and we're all going to live in a house that looks like the Beverly Hillbillies, right? That somehow Jesus left here and became a general contractor slash architect builder and man, if he's been working on our house for 2,000 years, Stephen, the Taj Mahal will have nothing on it, right? It's not what he's talking about at all. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father, where my father lives, there's plenty of room. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I'll receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be. The question then begs, where is Jesus? Now just follow this. And you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, no, we don't. And sometimes we look at our children, Frank, and we say, you know this, and they look back at us and say, no, I don't. And we say, yes, you do. There are some things you know that you don't know that you know. And Jesus looked at them and said, you know all of this. Now, religion has a way of so complicating, so exclusivizing, so barring and demanding and separating. But Jesus said, this place that I go to is the domain of my Father, and there's plenty of room. And in that spaciousness of God, I am going to work there to create a place that where I am, you'll live there too. And this is not, I contend, going to happen thousands of years or millions of years from now at the end of time when we all go to our big mansions. You know the way where I'm going. You know the way where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How would we know the way? Jesus said to him, you know the way because you know me. But just like Thomas, many of us know him and we know more about him than we even know that we know. We intuit things. We feel things. Jesus pulled children into his lap and said, you really want to get the kingdom? You really want to get Christ? Mature again to this. These things are deep memories inside of our soul that life and even religion has a way of hammering out of us. Jesus said, yes, you do, Thomas. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. A glorious statement of union that we have scandalously used to separate and hurt. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And Jesus leans in. In the sobriety of that moment, hours from torture, he's come down the home stretch now, and the Johannine gospel gives us what Matthew, Mark, and Luke doesn't. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were still wrestling in the 60s and 70s with Jesus as Messiah. But by the 90s, into the early part of the second century, we were fully beginning to grasp this was God come to us. And John's gospel remembered 
Whereas Luke and Matthew and Mark remember broken bread and the remembrance of Jesus, John has none of that now. He has the deep theological reflection that the church is beginning to grow into. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, ah, oh, hear it, feel it. From now on, you know him and you've seen him. And they take a deep breath and they look around. And Philip, like Thomas, doesn't play dumb for effect, but he feels dumb. And Philip says, Lord, Lord, Messiah, we, we can go there. I mean, being Messiah, calling yourself Messiah is getting you crucified. Please, are you saying what we think you're saying? Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus does not say, hocus pocus, come, O oh God. Jesus quietly leans in and says to him, Philip. And the voice larger than that of the larynx and throat and the mouth of a 33-year-old human being the voice that spoke the heavens and the earth into existence speaks to this voice of a friend, the touchable face of a best friend. And quietly he whispers, Philip, have I been so long time with you and you haven't known me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. For the next 800 years, yea, 2,000, we have spent in deep theological reflection trying to understand John 14's language of a monotheistic God in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Finally, the lay populace became so at a loss, we deferred it to the experts who gave us creeds and councils and told us we had to believe all of this strange language about the unity and plurality of a monotheistic God in three persons. When I contend the essence of this language was not simply speaking to the great mystery of the unity that's within God, it was trying chiefly to speak to the unity that exists between God and human beings. Jesus said, have I been so long time with you and you haven't come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you, Nicodemus, be a ruler of the Jews and not know these things? How can you be here at this feast and know, not know what has been prophesied, the nearness of God's Spirit? How can you say, show us the Father? Look at it. Do you believe that I'm in the Father? Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place. In my Father, there is plenty of room. In God, there's plenty of room. Do you not believe that I'm in the Father? Oh, what this world would understand if they knew there was room for Palestinians and Jews. There are room for Catholics and Protestants. There are room for different kinds of people. There may not be room enough in this earth, but there's room enough in God, Jesus said. Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? And I want to tell you about that place that I am in. In the Father, there is plenty of room. And I am going deep into that to prepare a place for you. That where I am, where am I? Up in heaven? No, where am I? I am in the Father and the Father is in me.
The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father. The Father's in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Give me two minutes to read this and we'll pick up here. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, you believe in, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father, there's plenty of room. I go into him to prepare a place for you that where I am, you will be also. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. That's why you're called the body of Christ when the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwell in you. He will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go into my Father to dwell there not alone, but to take all of you into that spacious dwelling place. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Watch. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Not 33 years, bronze skin, sandaled feet, blue robe. No, no, no. He'll be with you forever. That's the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see him. Or know him but you know him because he abides with you when he said you know the spirit of truth just like Philip and Thomas they would have said no we don't he said yes you do you don't know that you know but you know because he abides with you who's the spirit of truth he abides with you and will be in you and at that point they are so confused and he whispers, guys, I will not leave you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now watch. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. You'll see through eyes that can see spirits as well as flesh. You'll see through eyes that can see the true depth and meaning of this world. You'll see me. Because I live, you will live also. And in that day, this isn't about 800 years of creeds and councils trying to figure out homoousius, hypostatic union, and the co-eternality of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It wasn't the point. The point was about union with man. And that day, you will know that I'm in my Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you. It's such a complete union that it defies prepositional language. I'm in you. You're in me. I'm in the Father. The Father's in me. You are in God. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Now watch. Judas said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My Father will love him. You want to hear how it's going to happen? My Father will love him. And instead of taking you to heaven, we will come to him, father and son, and make our abode with him. He who does not love me doesn't keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but it's the father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you, and we close here, peace I leave with you. Remember the beginning, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. King James said, in my father's house are many mansions, and we got stuck architecturally. In my father's house there's plenty of room, is the best translation. Peace I leave with you, 
my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give. Do not let your heart be troubled. Remember that? Don't let your heart be troubled. I'm going to the Father in whom there's plenty of room, and I'm going to take you where I live in the Father. He closes, don't let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. When the Holy Spirit comes, you've heard that I said to you, I go away, I will come to you. I'm not going to leave you orphans. My Father and I will make our abode. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father, the deal of God in spirit is greater than the idea of even one fleshly body. The Father is greater than I. Brothers and sisters, the point that Jesus made was exactly this. He made a point, Carol Brusagar, that the ultimate union mystery of eternity is not the union of the divine Godhead, but it is the absolute union of God and man. Emmanuel, God with us. No, Jesus said, Emmanuel, God in us. And Jesus said, I'm going away to prepare a place in my Father. And you thought I was going to swift you away to that mansion. But Jesus said, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And when he comes, because God never goes anywhere in fraction, my Father and I will come. And you know where the mansion is? We will make our abode in you. And that, brothers and sisters, is the essential message of Jesus that is pointing out to men, women, boys, and girls what they may not know. And that is that God is pouring out his spirit, rivers of living water, union of God and man upon all flesh. We'll pick up there next week. Lord, thank you for our time together. Thank you for this text. Thank you, Lord, that we know some things that we didn't know that we know. Thank you, Lord, for the fullness of your spirit and the true message of Jesus. Forgive us, Lord, that we have postponed that acknowledgement. Bring us, Lord, more and more into clarity that we are the mansions. We are the tabernacles of God. Our body is the temple of the divine. Thank you, Lord, for the message of Jesus, the union of God and man. We receive that now with thanksgiving in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. I know you got all of that. Come back next week. We'll pick up there. God bless you. Go in God's name.